The University of Miami Law School Entertainment Arts and Sports Law Program presents the Leadership Game Plan. I'm Executive Producer and Program Director Greg Levy, and now over to our host, longtime NFL coordinator, head coach, three-time Grey Cup champion, NCAA champion with the Miami Hurricanes, Miami Law graduate, and now adjunct faculty member, Coach Mark Tressman. I believe that everyone can lead, no matter who you are or what you do. I believe just like quarterbacks, leaders are not born, they are developed. With so many platforms to speak our minds, there are countless ways to lead and impact the lives of others. So how we lead in this accelerating and interconnected world will determine our present and our future. That's why leadership today matters more than ever. Welcome to the Leadership Game Plan, where we go beyond the X's and O's through the unique lens of our accomplished guests. I'm your host, Mark Tressman, and let's get started. Like all good things, every athlete's on-field career comes to an end. For many athletes, it is at that moment of retirement that they start to consider what comes next, but not for Alex Rodriguez. Growing up, A-Rod was focused on the two Bs, baseball and business. When he started to earn money as a baseball player, he made savvy investments off the field in real estate, started learning from key mentors, including Warren Buffett and began to develop an entrepreneurial mindset. This deliberate approach provided Alex with a platform to transform from A-Rod to Alex, a successful investor, CEO, and entrepreneur. In the six years since appearing in his last baseball game, Alex has set a high bar for making an impactful, smooth, and graceful transition from all-star in the locker room to all-star in the boardroom. I first met Alex on Super Bowl Sunday when my daughter and I were invited for personal reasons to spend the day, have dinner, and watch the game. To keep it brief, I was overwhelmed by the family environment and the kindness of his guests who were mostly lifelong friends from Miami. They brought their children as well, and I was quickly amazed at how present, attentive, and generally caring Alex was to everyone in his home on this late afternoon and evening. Over his baseball career, Alex played 22 seasons and as a 14-time All-Star established himself as one of the best players in Major League Baseball history. After the 2016 season, Alex retired from baseball and quickly shifted into the broadcast booth as a baseball analyst, appearing on ESPN Sunday Night Baseball as well as other networks. He also quickly established himself in the business world outside of baseball. Alex's business endeavors are equally as impressive as his baseball achievements. Today, Alex is chairman and CEO of A-Rod Corp, the co-founder of VCP Ventures, the CEO of Slam Corp, and an owner of the Minnesota Timberwolves and Minnesota Lynx. In addition, he has shown his noteworthy love for and commitment to giving back to his hometown University of Miami community providing financial support for renovations to the university's baseball stadium and serving on the university's board of trustees. He also has been gracious to be present in our playbook for leadership in the law class the last two years. In this episode, Alex will share how we use adversity to become a better person, leader, and businessman. We also hear his views on the importance of mentorship, getting relevant experience, and the value of relationships. Please welcome Alex Rodriguez to the podcast, which was recorded as part of our playbook for leadership and the law class. Alex knows that we're gonna we're gonna have some questions, and then we're gonna open it. Um, you know, you can make it as interactive as you you want to, but we always start with our guests by just there's so many defi- definitions of leadership out there today. You know, as you lead today, what what are you, how do you you start out? How do you define leadership? You're a leader in so many different areas. How do you, how do you, you know, how do you define that? You know, it's funny. Um, my my former manager Joe Torrey said, um, and he said it kind of half kiddingly. He was I was a terrible manager for 25 years, and then I managed the Yankees, <laughs> <laughs> and then they called me a Hall of Fame manager. Right. <laughs> a lot of um, you know, I have this company, a venture firm. It's called BCP Vision Capital People. And when you get vision capital people, when you get those three letters right, it's very hard 
to lose, right? And let me walk through them real quick. Vision, when we look at young entrepreneurs or incubating a company, we look at young people, men and women that have these big, big vision. Now think about a big global TAM, right? Like Facebook, Amazon, uh, you know, Walmart, things that can actually transcend the US, things that can uh, potentially be a trillion dollar business, um, massive TAMs. Uh, then you need to deploy capital and a lot of it. Uh, a lot of businesses fall short because they don't have the capital. They have the idea, uh, they may have the people, but they don't have the capital. And then the third part is the hardest, I believe, is the people. And if you get the people right, then uh, you're halfway home, right? Because it's much easier to lead uh, intelligent, highly motivated, ethical, missionary type people. Um, so when it comes to leadership, it's surrounding yourself with the right team, uh, you're an average of the five people you surround yourself with and really having complete alignment and never asking someone to do something you're not willing to do yourself. Uh, I always tell my teammates, um, you know, if you need help, I'll walk, I'll, I'll do it with you, right? And that's important to do. It's hard to tell one of your teammates, go do X, Y, Z, but you're, you're doing, you know, A, B, and C over here, right? So really important to have alignment, have that humility, have the connectivity, and then from a leadership point of view, the thing that separates this coach, and you know this better than anyone, is people will go through a wall for you if they feel that you have their best interest at heart, right? If they can come to you in a moment of difficulties, challenges, um, they're gonna value your advice because they know that you care for them first, even above the company, or at least at the same level. And that's really important. The opposite is true. I've had coaches that I knew did not like me, that I knew kind of were hoping I would fail. And I would probably do one-tenth for someone like that compared to a coach that I love like Lupinella, right? And then even when they were giving me the right advice, I questioned it. And it's always good to question anyways. Um, but I questioned it and I would doubt myself, right? So having a leader that you trust, that you know, um, is someone you look up to, is someone that's going to teach you, mentor you, coach you, I think that's really important. Was there anything in your upbringing that brought you to these conclusions or there were things in your upbringing, we call it your leadership story, your narrative, that, that brought you to this moment or uh, whether you pivoted and realized this wasn't the way to do it and now you do? What, what, what happened in your early years that allowed you to be the leader you are today? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Pat Riley calls it the innocent, cl innocent climb, right? And when you have the innocent climb, like, Ash, how old are you now? 30 yet? 27. 27, and Nick's what, 25? Right, so these young folks are like in, in the most fun part of their development, right? I always say from age 20 to 30, forget what they're paying you. You can have a roommate, just have enough money to pay your bills, right? But make sure that from 20 to 30, go find the best people that can lead you, that can teach you, that can sponsor you and bring you in the room because it doesn't really matter if you make an extra 10 or 15,000 at 25. What matters is that you're in the game, you're getting at bats, they're bringing you into rooms like this where big businesses happen. Now, Ashley's 27, she's been with us for four years. She's been in rooms where we've done multi-billion dollar deals, right? And before these deals start, they're looking at me saying like, when is a young lady gonna be out? And uh, I'm like, no, no, the young lady's staying in. And they go, all right, we'll close the door, let's go. Right, and you need somebody to keep you in the room. Um, you need people of color, you need people, uh, women, you need uh, the more the better, right? And uh, I think it's really important. People always ask them, Mark, they ask me, well, Alex, you're the only Latino in the room. I said, well, that's not enough, right? Um, where are the women? Where are the Asians? Where is every community should be represented? And not because it's the right thing to do in 2022, it's because the room is better right? Um, uh, Selena, you, you know things uh, that I don't know. My daughters are 17 and 13. And they give me the greatest business advice. Um, they, they got me on Snap. They got me on, you know, investments on things that I'm like, what is Snap, right? <laughs> they knew. They told me Facebook was for old people like eight, seven years ago. Right? And Instagram was the thing. I'm like, what's Instagram, right? So um, I think in a, in a, the thing that you and I have, Coach, and I'm so impressed that, that you're a lawyer and a great coach. Talk about dimensions of 
of, of the depth of who you are and as a father and a husband, I think is really important to, to have these great foundations uh, and keep building on them. And as young people, I will say this, your net worth is your network, right? Um, the greatest lawyer I've ever been around, his name is Ed Herlihy. Okay? He's my lawyer. I'm proud to call him my lawyer. Uh, he has been uh, with Wachtell for over 30 years in New York. One office, one firm, um, about 200 lawyers. And to me, they're the best corporate uh, lawyers in the world. Um, they're really good at what they do. And the reason why I think Ed Hurley is the greatest, and Ed Hurley probably plays more golf than Tiger Woods, <laughs> is um, two things, is experience and relationships, right? And the most trusted, um, the most powerful people in the world um, are represented by Ed Hurley. One out of every three mega deals that you read about, the big, big ones, the Time Warners, um, these kind of enormous mergers, you know, Facebook buys, uh, WhatsApp, uh, Facebook buys, Instagram, those kind of big ginormous deals are being done by Ed Hurley. And he's got great relationships. So as young people, um, the ability to do what most people aren't willing to do. Most people are not willing to even drive 20 minutes to go see a client. Um, make sure you go drive, you know. Um, we had a company we were buying um, for about $10 billion. We were taking it public. And we went to Italy and the guy couldn't believe it. he goes, no one's ever come. A small little town in Italy, not like the famous cool parts of Italy you see on Instagram. The not so cool part. I was like, oh, this is Italy? I wish I knew. Um, and we spent four days there and every day started at 7 a.m. and ended at midnight. Literally, I was falling asleep. The last day I faked like I had a stomach. Like I couldn't even keep my eyes open. But the point is, the reason why we got that deal uh, under LOI and it was a successful deal is because we we're willing to do what others are not willing to do. It's not because we were smarter, it's not because we had more capital. Everything was pretty much the same. So what do you do to separate yourself? For us, it was being completely hands-on and taking a plane with seven of my people from my office and we then went down there. Great. So a few of the students mentioned adversity and how mm -hmm. adversity has helped shape you and your career. You wanna hit on that a little bit? Oh yeah. So look, I, I've never seen anyone that has gone anywhere without some adversity. It's never a straight line. I don't care who you are, whether it's sports, business, parenting. Um, you know, I've had a number of kind of blue chip adversity, uh, big issues, uh, which have been very public. Some have been private, but uh, I can talk about my suspension in 2014. It was the definitely the saddest part of my life where I felt... Um, I had played, you know, over 15 years. I was a lock for the Hall of Fame and I got myself in trouble. Um, and I served a one year suspension for PED use. And it started with surrounding myself with the wrong people, the desperation of uh, I, I needed to uh, justify this enormous contract I was playing. I couldn't get out of bed because my hips were under so much pain with two surgeries. And then I surrounded myself with the wrong people. And the reason why I say those three things in that order is you have to be able to recognize that desperation should not lead to bad decisions, right? And the truth is, if I had to do it again, I think Javier, you wanted to know, is I would have just played it out and I, I couldn't have played. And if that was the end of my career because um, my hips couldn't do it anymore, then I walk into the Hall of Fame and I get 100% of my money, right? Instead, <laughs> instead... I try to push the envelope. I try to get out of bed because I, I think I want to do this contract good. And it was the wrong decision, right? Um, the, the idea could have been good that you wanted to justify your contract, but you got to play with, within the rules. And I knew the rules and I broke the rules. And, and that's on me and that's why I served that suspension. But I think with all of that, it, it allowed me to kind of reset and uh, turn the lens, lens in inward and really think about, why am I making these mistakes? Why do I keep uh, imploding? And uh, over thousands of hours of therapy and, uh, and working through it, that year, I was hoping, it was like 15 of us, every player got 50 and I got 211 games. I was hoping I would get like 50 or 75 because I, I could play the second half of the year. But as a result, it was a blessing in disguise because I needed the full year um, to rehab my body, my mind, my soul, and just do a cleansing of just like 
I haven't had a break since I was 10 years old. And since I was probably younger than 10 to about the time I was 37 or 38, uh, really no one had said no to me. Uh, there was no consequences. And I hadn't had a break from baseball. And all those things are bad, right? The best thing a parent can do is say no early and often, right? And my daughters, you know, they want to, you know, pull my hair, whatever I have left, left. They, they get upset all the time. And they say, I'm going to go to mommy, I'm going to go to mommy. I said, you know, go to your mom, go to Mother Teresa. The answer is no, right? And it was just like these continuous yes, 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 yes. And what I realized, yes is yes creates a blind spot, right? And the blind spot is you think you can do anything. You think you're invisible. You think that nobody can touch you. And, uh, and those are all really dangerous characteristics. Um, so the truth is, post my suspension, uh, I'm a different man. Uh, I have a different perspective. I think winning, and this I think will resonate with you guys that are all future lawyers here, is that pre my suspension, I felt that winning was big contracts, uh, was home runs, was championships, win at all costs, right? You've seen this kind of narrative. And post my suspension, I realized that winning looks like this, right? It's collaborating, it's, it's sharing information, is being a good parent, is being a present father to my two beautiful girls, is, um, you know, being, being a good teammate and a good leader, right? It just has a different meaning to what winning looks like. Um, and I think because of my struggles, has made me a much better person, uh, a better father, and just uh, a better person to be around. During that year when you were suspended, was there someone specific who helped you kind of reevaluate your values and kind of move forward and say, okay, now moving forward, this is what I'm going to prioritize? Yeah. Uh, more importantly, Lily, what it taught me was that uh, who really wasn't around, who, who wasn't uh, there for the right reasons, right? So not saying that you guys need to get in a bunch of trouble to then realize who's your friends. <laughs> but that was a consequence that occurred because of my adversity, right? And I realized, I'm like, oh, shoot. I thought this whole room was my friends, but it's really only, it's only two. And that was an interesting exercise. Um, and of course, then they all try to rally back on when things start going well. And a different story. But um, yeah, I, I can think about a handful of people that were there that were truth tellers. Um, you know, I had the best kind of people that were around were people that were, they were there, but they weren't gonna sugarcoat me. They were there to recognize that I made a mistake. They were there uh, proud that I'm taking full accountability while, I, while, I, while at first I wasn't. Um, they were there to help me get back on my feet. And uh, they were there, you know, providing love. But again, not, sugarcoating it because then that would be differently so you mentioned earlier that um people will be willing to sort of go for go through a wall for you if you're able to fundamentally show them that you care mm -hmm. and that's something that you've obviously been successful with mm -hmm. as you know coach attested to when he introduced you i'm wondering just sort of how you've been able to be so successful in that in conveying to people you know that you have that true fundamental interest so that they're willing to go out on a limb for you yeah, look, sometimes you try and sometimes it doesn't work, right? Sometimes you don't land um, what you're trying to convey. But I always tell people when they come in, I always feel like, look, that door is always open, right? And I feel like if you put a bird in a cage and you leave the door open, the chances are from them staying in that cage is much better right? because you want to have that freedom. When you lock something, you're like, well, you, we, don't, we don't make people sign non-competes, right? Um, the only thing I ask you is if you leave our company, don't take our people with you. You know, we wish you well. We may invest with you. Um, I believe in you. That's why you're here. But whether you're here for two years or 20 years, we hope that when you leave, because um, at some point everything comes to an end, you leave richer with wisdom, experience, um, and you feel like you're better equipped to go handle the world. And in many ways, I hope you feel like you got your MBA from working with us as a, as a young person. Um, and then I think people are just very smart when they ask for advice. Um, they can hear if you're perpetrating or if you're, or if you're being real and it's, it's pretty easy. Um, and all you got to do is test them with a couple of tricky questions and you'll know whether this sounds more like someone that should be in your life or someone that's just uh, a mercenary boss. So, um, 
At what point in your career did you start thinking about post-playing career and business and real estate and some of the other investments that you've had? And who was it that kind of helped guide you as you started to think about that transition? I started thinking about it. Like I, I wanted to be, ever since I was a 10-year-old boy, like the two Bs, baseball and business. Those, those were my passions. I saw my father who loved baseball and was uh, an entrepreneur, uh, sold shoes from our own apartment in Washington Heights in New York, also was a mez lender. And he was really, really good with numbers. I used to call him the calculator. And that was before we all had calculators with our phones and everything else. Um, so I learned a lot from there. I think that's what my passion, but I, I've always wanted to be, um, really kind of think about what are the next three or four plays. Uh, as an athlete, coach, you think about first down and third down, right? If we get to fourth down and one, you're probably thinking about that when it's second down and, and long, right? If we get to fourth down, is this fourth down territory? I think as athletes and coaches, we're always thinking about the next four or five steps because you never want to get caught, you know, flat-footed, right? So uh, as an athlete, uh, early on, I started reading all these athletes. Remember the 30 for 30 broke uh, ESPN? Uh, I always started fearing that I would end up like that. And I said, what can I do today fundamentally and tangible where it's digestible that I can actually do one or two or three things in my early days in my career to avoid going bankrupt when I was done playing. Now, the average career, I'm gonna give you three data points. The average career for a major league baseball player was five and a half years, is five and a half years. You make 90% of your lifetime income from age 20 to 30. And there's 750 players, well now there's 26, so add 26 to that. But 750 players in the major league rosters around major league baseball, less than 5% have a college degree. And that means undergrad degree. So with that information alone, I would short the stock. You can see why players get in trouble. It's hard to do um, great things with your finances when you're in your 50s. And you're educated and you have lawyers and you have MBAs and they make crazy mistakes. The, the smartest people in the world make crazy mistakes. Now imagine a 23-year-old that has 30 million bucks in the bank. How is he, how is he equipped to make great decisions in financial. By the way, they don't teach financial literacy in our public school system, which is a catastrophe. So I started by playing a little defense by, you know, my, my good old um, mentor for a long time has been Warren Buffett. And he talks about two things, cash flow and circle of competence. And apartments meant both. Uh, we were lifetime renters because we never had enough money to buy a house. So I was an expert in apartments because I've stayed there my whole life. <laughs> And, uh, and it produced cash flow. So early on when I was like 21, 22, I bought a, a duplex, um, sold that for a nice profit a couple of years later, bought a fourplex, eightplex, and we grew that portfolio to well over 10,000 apartment units in 14 cities uh, all over the Southeast United States. And, and that was the start of my, my whole thesis was, okay, if I play for five and a half years and I buy one asset a year, then I would have five and a half assets by the time I'm done playing. And over time, I would pay debt down. It would appreciate and the cash flow would increase. And I always looked at it as, as this kind of a, a hedge to my playing days. As a player, your earning power ultimately will come down. You'll have to retire by the time you're 30 or 35 or 40. And if you're investing in real estate, over time, it should be opposite, right? It should appreciate, cash flow should appreciate, and you get depreciation benefits. So it was just basically a hedge not to go bankrupt. One of our guests had talked about having a personal board of advisors. That's what she called it um, in terms of people that mentored her and uh, helped her with important decisions. Do you have something similar to that? Or who are some of those mentors to you? You mentioned Warren Buffett um, that have kind of helped you as you've kind of gone into new arena. I do. I think this is a really important part of this whole development process is who are your mentors? When you look back when you're 75, and you look back at your career, a big indicator for how successful you are is tell me who those five advisors were in your life. That, that's massive. And I've had people that have their imprints all over my career. Um, and my board is not all the same white board. It's not just, you know, white men that are super successful. It's not all women like my mom that are super powerful. Uh, they're diversified in every way, the way they look, um, the way they think, uh, their expertise. It would be 
it would be useless, I think, to have five board of advisors that are on the tech space. I mean, they think one way, right? And over the last eight weeks, they're all probably in a hospital somewhere with a, with a heart attack because they've gotten pounded, <laughs> right? So I, I always try to think about sweaters and tan tops. I posted something about this a couple of weeks ago where, um, you know, if, if, if it's really cold in Buffalo, your sweaters do really well. If it's really hot in Miami, your tan tops do well. But it would be silly just to own sweaters or it would be silly just to own tan tops. The same way I feel about advisors, right? I, I want people that... Uh, that can tackle different obstacles at different times. What are some of the ways that you filter out those people? Like I said, you know, separating yourself with the right people. Um, like what are some of the characteristics, some of the traits that you look for? Of course, some of the things that probably match your values. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm just curious because I know probably everybody wants to work with you, right? Probably there's tons of people that are successful and you know leaders in their space that want to be on that stage with you. Um, but how, what are some of the ways that you kind of filter that out? Yeah, well, let, let me back you up to 2014 because not everyone wanted to work with me. You know, I remember out of every 10 emails I sent, probably one or two got returned and it was heartbreaking, right? I'm like, here, I've built this incredible career. I have well over 500 home runs and I can't get people to email me back. But I did that to myself, right? So that was like, you know, the darkest hour. Um, when it comes to people that you admire and respect, usually they're gonna have a track record, sometimes 30, 40 years, sometimes five or 10 years. But I, I think if you, if you dig deep and you do some due diligence, you quickly realize if there's someone that you want in your circle or, or not. Um, and then once you identify a target, th then you can start going to work uh, with it. I think one of the things that that young people do is they feel like they have nothing to offer. Like I hate the, the when they say, oh, you're so rich, I don't know what to get you at Christmas. That's just a lazy way of not getting your gift, right? <laughs> Come on, right? But, but that's just lazy. And that's where the world is today. And if you can be opposite of that, I, like who, I mean, just let's just think about it. Who wouldn't want to give me a nice picture of my daughters in a frame? That'd be the greatest gift I got in years. And it costs how much? Under 10 bucks? Well, the frame, maybe 30, 40 bucks, whatever. Right? So, so don't fall into this category of like, oh, you know, it's Warren Buffett. They'll never return my email. Try. You never know. Right? And more importantly, what can you provide for Warren Buffett or your target that, that they don't have today? Right? Here's what older successful people want is they want to be around young, smart, energetic go-getters because you're going to remind them of themselves. And if you continually uh, show up every single day, coach, just some people that are first day in training camp, you're like, it's not going to make it. This guy, Javier, I'm not going to know. He types kind of funny and <laughs> he's, just, he's just not going to make it. And the shirt is questionable. And <laughs> But then 30 days in, we're having a glass of wine. And he goes, that kid, Javier, man, he is the toughest son of a gun we have here. Did you see the way he went through that wedge? Did you see the way? And you know what I liked? When his guy went down, he was the first guy in a knee down, right? And then he went and hustled. Did you see when he went to hustle and get the water? Like he's a keeper, right? It's not just the performance on the field. And mercenaries think like this. Well, if I go and I get that extra of this, or I think that, that I'm going to be the lawyer. No, sometimes it's not, it's not just killing people. That's the easy part. You can go kill people. When you have a hammer, people are abusive with that hammer. I always think my greatest asset for any one of us is when we have the hammer, be kind and put it down. Hopefully you never have to use that damn stupid hammer because people will remember when they have the hammer on you. And, you know, we talked about the 90-10 rule. I did not know this pre-suspension. Like all I want if I'm doing a deal with you is the 90% rule, right? If, if I'm worth 100, hey, you know what? I'm good with 90. Here's one thing that I need, but let's go do another deal. And, and that will go a long ways. Um, there are some people out there that if they make $50 million in a day, I'm not going to mention any names, but, but they're people that are colleagues. If they make 50 million bucks in one day, they're not happy. They want to make 50 million bucks and they want to see the other guy they're going up against burn and crash and burn in hell. And that sucks. That's not a way of living, right? And I hope that's not why you guys are in law. I'm, I'm confident you're not. But that, that's the real ugliness out there that's out there. They want to destroy you. And I don't think there's a world that you need to destroy anyone. You can be tough, 
you can definitely play tough and you can have your values. And there's just my last offer and this is where we stand. But you can also do it with a smile and some class. And guess what? There's going to be another deal. And that relationship is going to be important to you. Because as a client, if you're representing me, the only thing you can bring to me is your experience, your knowledge, and your relationships. And if you don't have one of those, it's going to be hard for me to hire you. Yeah, just going a bit back to uh, diversity. Um, I was I just had a question like, um, how we had Doug last week. He was talking about going places and being here with everybody we work with. Um, and I came up with a point that um, as a Latino or a woman or you know a minority, it's a bit hard to get to those places. Um, and you said that it's very important to have all these different types of people on the table with you. My question is how as a Latino. I can help myself and others around me get to that space and succeed, um, you know, as a whole. Like you said, people are trying to crash and burn, but we're trying to bring everybody with us. Um, how can we get to that place? Well, I think is, again, thinking about it as a contrarian, right, is a little bit harder in a market like um, Miami. But say you were in Naples, right? Um, you go to a law firm, there's probably less than a handful of people that can speak Spanish, right? Well, this, the Hispanic community does about a trillion dollars plus in U.S. expenses, right? That's a massive space. And it's good for you to have some data points, right? Like for you to have two or three points. What are we doing uh, in this community and are we attacking it properly? And again, you can make yourself uh, even a bigger asset by, by doing something like that. But the great thing about sports, right? And I think this is overused sometimes is, oh, hire me because I'm Latino, hire me because I'm a woman or whatever. I think that's a mistake. The beauty about sports is I didn't care if I went against white, orange, green, or purple. I was going to beat the crap out of you because I'm better and I'm more prepared and I'm tougher and I loved it. And coaches never said, well, you know, Rivers is white and you're Hispanic. No, like that doesn't matter. Like bring it. Whoever it is, bring it because I'm going to beat you. That's the mentality as an athlete. So I, I think the more you lean into, um, I don't need any favors, I'm going to pretend that we're both white or we're both Spanish, uh, and then let everything else take care of itself. I think sometimes that could be used as a crutch, and uh, I think that's a mistake. Max? I think um, the mercenary and missionary example is, is really fantastic. I think it speaks to a lot of the things that we're taught in negotiating classes um, about not trying to win everything because that second deal will then be off the table. But I'm curious, um, because the stereotype of an athlete, regardless of the league is that they are a mercenary. Um, you know, we talk about football like it's war. And I'm curious, at what point in your career did you sort of realize that I don't need to be a missionary I don't, or a mercenary, I don't need to be that, that I'm going to beat your ass uh, mentality and become that sort of missionary and surround yourself with those people? Yeah, no, good, fair question. I, I think early on, you know, I was represented by a, by a hard-charging lawyer, you know, Scott Boris. And the only way he won was, you know, destroy and conquer, right? But when you're 18 and 19 and 20, 25, like, I, I don't have a dad to turn to. I don't have, my mom was working two jobs. She was serving tables at night. And uh, you, you become an average of those five people you surround yourself with. And that's that was an example of me. But it's funny, when I was going to my second contract, I realized, I was already 28, 29, I realized then that I'm like, wait a minute, I, I don't need every last dollar here. I already have... My first one, look, when you're first coming out of the gates, uh, you can make an argument that you could be a little bit more mercenary, but I also think that there's a way of doing it in a missionary way, right? Um, where it's collaborative, not collusive. Now, what I do think is that I realized that Scott was going for like 400 million and blah, blah, blah. And I realized I was gonna burn more bridges that I needed and I didn't really need 400 because that wasn't gonna make me happy. What was going to make me happy staying in New York, and I wanted to practice loyalty to George Steinbrenner, because he already made me a very wealthy young man. So I didn't need to like kick him twice and where it hurts, right? But I still got an enormous contract, and I was very happy. But the way I needed to get there, I needed to fire my mercenary lawyer, and then I went a much more hand-on approach, and I got the deal done myself. But I couldn't have done that at 23 or 24 because I just didn't have the life experience. Okay. Yeah, um, this is a question crafted towards Alex the man in 
the athletic article it mentions uh, that you want people to remember you more than as a baseball player than as the businessman, the great father, uh, all those things. So for all of us that we're going into a high stakes career and we're going to have a lot of pressure and deadlines in your professional as as Alex the man, what has been the best way for you to balance your relationships with your family, your friends, your inner circle, and also strive and try to be the best at your craft? I, look, I've, I've always believed that going narrow and deep is better than going wide and shallow. Uh, that goes in business. Uh, that goes for relationships. And what you realize is that all the people you think are your friends are acquaintances. And some of your acquaintances are <laughs> really more like uh, enemies. <laughs> and some of your um, people that you think don't like you are actually allies, right? So you have to go through this evolution and process of ups and downs because, again, you find out very little when you win a championship every year. Everyone looks the same. Everyone's jumping on your wagon, right? So when you have volatility is when you actually get some real information. And I'm a big believer in turning negative into a positive and by kind of staying still and watching. Look, I, I think your health and wellness, your sleep, drinking plenty of water, staying mentally and health, healthy is the best thing you can do for any one of your clients, right? The only way you're going to go out and think is if you're trying to, I know it's hard for lawyers, especially if you're in a big case, to get eight hours sleep. But maybe you can sneak in a couple, a nap here and there because if, if you're not rested, if you're not fit, if you're not uh, spiritually connected, then you're not going to be the best lawyer you can be. So I would say take care of yourself first, right? There's a reason why when um, you get on a plane, they always say, you know, put your mask on first, then your babies. Right. If you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of your babies. The same is true for your clients. Uh, Matt from Rivers. Yes. You mentioned a few minutes ago about not having the life experience to realize where you were going. What did you need to learn or do or understand before you thought you were ready to take on a more missionary aspect of your career rather than a mercenary aspect? Yeah, you know, when you when you're young, you don't really understand the value of relationships. Why? Because you haven't been around long enough. I mean, I, I hear young investors talk about, oh, this market's going to go on forever. But they weren't there for like, you know, 19, you know, 21. They weren't there for 88, 99, 08, right? These things do happen. It's never a straight line, right? And the funny part is like, I realize now, and I get bummed out that how wrong I was and how right my mom was with everything. And my grandma really right with everything. <laughs> Right. There's something about experience that doesn't lie. Right. And there's kind of this algorithm that you develop internally. Unfortunately, when you're older, that you realize that your daughters are going to be in trouble if they do the following. And sometimes you have to, like, say, do I jump in or do I have to let them go through experience? And sometimes you build guardrails so they don't crash and burn, but they're going to hurt a little bit. Right. And uh, so I think just with experience, um, you see the world kind of go round and round. The most important thing that I have, for example, you can have 20 different hedge funds, private equity groups, and they're going to say, what is your differentiator? Like, Why should I put my money to you? We have two things at AY Corp, relationships and deal flow. That's it. Are we smarter? Can we underwrite better? All that thing, right? Everybody's the same at the same level. In the major league, once you go to the major leagues, everybody can throw, run, hit, throw, curveball, everything, right? In business, the same. Sports is easier because it's tangible. You see Shaquille O'Neal, he's seven foot to 100, right? You see someone really small, you're like, oh, wow, Shaq is so much better. Business is tricky because it's the same delta, you just can't see it. And sometimes it's the most unassuming guy or woman that's going to kick your butt, right? Usually, if a guy's 5'6", Shaq's going to destroy them 100 out of 100 times. In business, totally opposite. So you really have to um, understand, have humility, kind of look at it with uh, uh, apprehensive eyes, right? And not, and be, you know, a cynic and to a degree. You have to look at it in, in a cynical way to make sure that you're not going into it because of a bias. And so many times decisions are made because, oh, this guy reminds me of someone that I had but he's nothing like him, right? Or this guy reminds me of, but you got to do your own due diligence and 
and we move. That's why one of the things I love about, you know, if we look at a company, we look at it and we evaluate. I don't want to look at the price of what Javier is selling me this company for. And then we decide this company's worth, um, you know, $200 million. And then we say, what's the price? $250, we pass. But if it's under $200, we'll buy it. Right? But if we look at the price first, it's going to affect the way we appraise this business. So it's really important to be an independent thinker. Rivers? Uh, yeah, so you mentioned the beer, and then you mentioned the article that we were before class, you know, talking about being mentally healthy. So I was just curious how critical to your success you thought, like, going to therapy was and stuff, um, like, in the second half of your career. I think it's in incredibly important. Look, if someone like The Rock or someone like me says therapy is cool, then that's very powerful, right? If, if Alex at 14 says it is not as powerful, right? So I think part of one of my responsibilities as a leader is putting all the things on the table that actually help me and not being ashamed of it, right? Um, but meet someone in your life that doesn't need therapy, that'll be the first person. I'd like to meet them. <laughs> right? But we all need to talk it out, right? And some, some of us uh, hold things inside. Some of us are better writers, right? Um, some of us can talk. Uh, you guys like the, the show Suits? Right, so Lewis is always talking into his thing. Yeah, what, what, whatever form you use, that's totally up to you. But I highly recommend it. It was, it was good for me. And it's, I'll tell you a funny story. We had a guy named Chad. And uh, Chad was brought in in like 2007 to the New York Yankees. Good-looking kid from Dallas. I say kid at the time. He was probably like 30, 31. And uh, George Steinbrenner says, I want you guys to spend time with this guy. He is uh, psychotherapy, psychologist, I couldn't even hear the words, and he's a doctor with three different degrees. Okay, great. He sat in that office for six months, not one person came to see him. The next spring, um, he said, I want you guys to meet Chad. <laughs> Again, cut two. He is our, um, he is a performance coach. And there was a line at his office, right, <laughs> from here to the batter's box. And a lot of it is how you package something, right? Nobody wants to go cycle this, this, this that. No way. That's a, that's a confession, right? But, but a coach, we're all willing to get coached. And the question that I have for you is, who's coaching you? Who's mentoring you? Um, the biggest and most important investment every single one of us in this room can make is the ability to communicate clearly. Communicate writing skills and speaking skills. Because the story is true and has been told many times. The person who tells the best story takes the bacon home. Alex, let me ask you just on that thing on men mental health is that uh, we all agree that everybody needs to see somebody to help them. We'd all agree with that. We kind of all agreed with that. What are the qualities, since we all either need it or have family that need it, what are we looking for when we go see somebody, uh, you know, see a psychologist or somebody to help us? What, what qualities are you looking for that you've seen that have helped you in the, in the mental health provider? You know, it's funny, mental health um, aid can come from all different, your dog can be your therapist, <laughs> right? I, I'm not someone that's like such like textbook, like you right. need to be a doctor with five degrees from Harvard, like, no. Like so my sister is an incredible therapist to me, mm -hmm. but I only go to see her when I'm having gross problems, <laughs> which is often, <laughs> um, but she's the best. And she'll sit on my couch and just sit there and like have the most unbelievable patience for me. Um, and then if I'm having other issues, I may go to somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but, but I think someone that you have to have some type of vibe with, uh, there has to be a chemistry. Uh, it has to be someone that's not afraid of you, of losing you. And you can sense when people are afraid to tell you something you don't want to hear. It's okay to be compassionate, but you have to be honest. Mm -hmm. You have to be transparent because you've got to get to the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. So you can start building it. People don't tell you the truth. And this is a really tricky thing in today's world. If you, saw, so if you tell someone the truth, they want to sue you or they want to say mental things or, you know, so it's a tricky, tricky part. Like you have to communicate like very carefully, like Selena, are you doing okay? And you have four of the people in the room and like, it, it's a tricky world. And it's that, that part of it, I don't, 
that part of it sucks. That part will probably make me retire sooner than, than not. Because when you do for young people and they don't do the job and they're going to go back to like, well, is the environment or is this or is that, that, that could be tricky too. We'll get on. Oh, Sorry, I have one question. Um, I guess kind of going back to what I said at the start of like reminding yourself about your roots and, and kind of trying to stay grounded. I think I'm also curious to kind of hear your thoughts on that, but also balancing this idea of ambition, but also like philanthropy. Like I really resonate when you say like, I feel like this debt to the university or something like that. Like how do you, I guess, balance that in your career? Yeah, I think, look, m most um, great students, I found them to be great teachers. Right, it kind of goes hand in hand a little bit. Um, I think I find a lot of joy of doing things like this, right? Like really hoping to help the next generation. Even if I can give one piece of information that helps you guys one day, that'll make me really happy. Um, there was a time I didn't have this time to do this. So um, as you start establishing yourself, even at the very beginning, two things that upset me is when people say, well, I don't have enough money to invest or I don't have enough time to give. I think they're both BS. Because if you have $200, that's enough to invest, right? And if you have 20 minutes, enough to you know, give, right? And whether it's the Boys and Girls Club or something that's important to you in your local community. Um, so I think the way to stay connected is, is to go out and give your time and energy and try to help others. Um, but everything we think about at, at Avar Corp has a double bottom line. It's we wanna do good and also do well in the community. Um, the way that I, I love is I've put, you know, over 40 kids through college right here at the University of Miami, um, first generation immigrants like me. Uh, and the Boys and Girls Club uh, was a lifesaver because when my father left, the Boys Club entered and it gave me a safe place, an environment where I can do this. I can work on my skills, do my homework, learn how to play sports. And sports was the single best teacher I had in my life, right? Uh, I, I always want kids to be able to play as many sports as possible. Whether you're good or not, it's irrelevant. Nobody cares. Um, I played football and basketball. Because I didn't end up in the NFL or NBA, I didn't think it was a waste of time. It was incredible priceless skills that I developed by playing those sports. Um, and never never think that you can go back and say, oh man, you know what, that was a waste of time. Nothing's a waste of time. You can build on it. I guarantee you that um, you learn more through your failures than you do with your successes. We hit on uh, culture at Arod Court. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about how you would define the culture there. A lot like sports. Um, you know, I always say we don't really have bosses. We all have teammates. You know, we, we have this um, mentorship program where seniors uh, coach freshmen and freshmen coach seniors. I think the latter is really an important piece because just because you're older doesn't mean you're smarter. Um, and the world has changed so much in the last five years, probably more so than the last 50 years or five years. I think the next five years are going to be even accelerated. So um, my daughters um, and the young people in our office, they come up with great ideas. The culture is we sit around here every Monday um, and we have a room like this and our folks in Zooms who are all over. And every person around the room talks about their weekly goals. What do they need help with? What are they excited about? And sometimes we share what's one big, big idea. We all need a moonshot idea, right? A moonshot. And you can't live life without moonshots, ideas, right? Even if that's 1% of your portfolio. Um, we all want to have a dream and we all want to you know, swing for the fences. And uh, so we're big believers in one moonshot idea. So, the culture, I think, is very collaborative and, uh, and uh, exciting. So last year you talked a little bit about LQ at ARAD Corp and leading with love and Mark um, talks a lot about that in our course here. So can you just hit on that and why you think that's important in today's, you know, Yeah, I, I really think that, you know, the best teams in sports uh, are like a family and, and they truly love each other. And you have to have this connectivity of uh, checking your ego at the door. And, uh, you know, winning is loving and loving is winning, right? And I just feel that um, caring for your teammates, um, you know, going that extra step, setting up your teammates is really, really vital. Um, I always think about, you know, the runaway dunk. Uh, you know, I like those guys that, you know, they pass it to their friend and they shoot the layup. Um, those are characteristics that I look for, right? Um, you know, Pat Riley again, who's one of my, my great friends and mentors, 
he talks about the disease of me, right? The disease of me basically uh, means this is after the innocent climb. Uh, you get success. You get a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, what they say, fat belly, right? You have a big steak in your stomach and, and you're just not moving as well and you're not as hungry. You, you've lost your predator ways and now you're a prey. And you see this often in sports. Um, championship teams, um, they do 80% of the work and they want 20% of the credit. The opposite is true for losing teams. They do 20% of the work and they want 80% credit. At the end of your career, at the end of your business career, what do you want others to say about your leadership style and skills? I just, I think just that I made a, an impact in their lives and I thought about um, the team first versus myself. Um, I think any good leader has to be willing to, you know, drown with his troops first, right, and go down with them. I think if, if they know that um, and they believe that uh, you have the chops, you're, you're hardworking and you're going to lead them to the promised land and you truly, truly care about the better of the whole, the team and them individually, I think uh, you, you have a good chance. Awesome. Mark, you want to close cool. it? Oh, I, I think um, we've all seen that this, this has even been more than a compelling hour. Uh, the takeaways have been incredible and uh, they'll be long lasting. Thank you Goodbye. very much. For, Thank you guys. For Good luck. Time. Thanks go out to our executive producer, Greg Levy, Associate Dean and Director of the Entertainment, Arts and Sports Law Program at the University of Miami School of Law. I want to also thank our engineer and editor, Christopher Elzadi, our theme music from Calyptra and special acknowledgement to our research assistant, Nick Rossi, a fellow attorney and student who's done a great job in our preparation. Mm -hmm.